Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of the Eris Tour, taking a deeper dive into Gilded Age Newport. Long before the fashionable Hamptons today, Newport, Rhode Island was the summer high society place to be. Newport, for a limited amount of weeks in the summertime months, was a way of life. It was the way of life. We have two legendary heiresses coming out of later decades within Newport in our investigation in the coming weeks. But before we get to those ladies, we're going to spend this week in Newport talking about its Gilded Age heyday. What would those ladies have grown up to expect? The Newport Colony is where one of a certain set summered for decades. We know it began as a hotel hotspot, and there was some building through the 1880s, but on a much smaller scale than what was about to happen in its Gilded Age heyday. Bellevue Avenue is the stage for this ostentation with so many heiresses doing it. Women are about to take charge of Newport. Before we start our journey today, I do have a spyglass here with a few names I see. I want to give some huge thanks and praise to our most recent supporters over at patreon.com slash done and done. Big thanks, Meredith H., Kathy R., Lindsay B., and Sierra F., Holy cats, thank you so, so much to our new and existing supporters. I am really grateful for your support on Patreon, the place you go to get all kinds of goodies at whatever your level of support, including ad-free and early episodes, as well as not-done-yet bonus episodes, too. We just finished up one of my favorite mother-daughter heiress teams, Anna and Delphine Dodge on Not Done Yet. We're even having a book club this month covering Dominic Dunn's The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. That is planned for October 22nd. A tremendous thanks to all supporters over on Patreon. You are an enormous part of what actually makes this podcast happen. So grateful to all of you. Today, it is a dive into Newport, Rhode Island and the Gilded Age at its most ultimate. Money becomes no object as we progress through the decades in Newport. You have a lot of families all trying to outdo each other or trying to impress each other or get back at their neighbors, which are normally related to them in one way or another. Who are some of our main players and what is the cost of doing vacation business in Newport for the season? Let's investigate. Newport and its summer colony legend is kind of incredible. Newport is legend in a certain period of time and history and definitely makes an impression into the psyche of our man Dominic Dunn. Newport is the summer playground of the wealthy, high society folks for many decades. 
But holy cats, they really had their heyday in the Gilded Age. But there's always a beginning. We have covered Newport, Rhode Island as a booming colonial port city. We have made it through its hotel seaside growth period and the beginning of its building boom. Certainly, wealthy folks from the South were building here, and soon enough, their high society counterparts from the North will begin doing it too. It is Ward McAllister, co-founder of the 400, with his buddy Caroline Shermerhorn Astor. Ward is going to buy a farm in Newport in the 1850s called Bayside Farm. And soon enough, Ward McAllister is inviting his friends down from New York City to visit, you know, for picnics for parties. Remember that Gordon Bennett's Casino comes along in 1880. And that very next year, 1881, welcome Caroline Astor to the Newport Party. Caroline knows all about Newport. She has summered here with her good friend, Jenny Jerome, and her other good friend, Consuelo Esnaga. For years and years, these are all summer girls. We've mentioned all of these names in previous episodes. But it is here in 1881 that Caroline, Shermerhorn Astor, is going to make her own mark on Newport by acquiring a little summer cottage called Beechwood. Beechwood was completed in 1853 for Daniel Parrish. And when he passes away, Caroline and her husband, William Backhouse Astor Jr., would like a summer cottage of their own. Beechwood will become tied to the Astor family for generations. $2 million will buy Beechwood, and immediately Caroline sets about Richard Morris Hunt to redesign and renovate the place. The ballroom of Beechwood in this redesign will naturally be able to hold 400. Not to be outdone, though, in 1888, Caroline's main social competition, Alva Vanderbilt, is looking to make her mark in Newport. And she does this with her 39th birthday present from her husband, the $11 million, half a million cubic feet of marble home, aptly called Marble House, completed in 1892. A few more Vanderbilts here, another one, Frederick William will complete Rough Point in 1892. This will be the future home of an upcoming heiress, Doris Duke. However, Cornelius Vanderbilt, brother-in-law to Alva Vanderbilt, is not going to be outdone. Cornelius finishes his summer cottage, The Breakers, in 1895. The Gilded Age has come to Newport. Taking this particular bit from warwickhistory.com about Newport in this summer Gilded Age time. It was especially during the period of 1890 to 1914 that Newport rivaled the extravagance of the Roman Empire. It was the period when summer residents spent millions on entertainment for the eight to ten weeks of the season. Here we find some of our most flamboyant and interesting rogues, rascals, and pillars of society. Adjectives used in describing the personalities involved in Newport summer society often take on the terminology associated with playing cards. 
Newport's mansions seem to be rife with kings, queens, knaves, and jokers, and often boasted of a full house. The ante for playing in this game was usually at least a net worth of over five million, and a cottage costing at least one million. In addition, many of those playing the game did so with less than a full deck. Tales of drunken orgies, absurd dinners for both humans and animals, outrageous temper tantrums, and callous disregard for servants and workers abound. In addition, heartbreak, loneliness, tragedy, and madness seem to have accompanied the elegant phaetons and coaches as they moved along Bellevue Avenue, leaving bizarre calling cards along the way. Social historians point out that women dominated the scene at Newport. Many were very talented, clever, and domineering. These queens of American society, such as Mrs. Herman Ulrichs, Mrs. Stuvestant Fish, Mrs. William Backhouse Astor, and Mrs. William K. Vanderbilt, were pace-setters and created a new standard for social entertaining. Millions were spent to erect these pleasure palaces, and it was not uncommon for the most affluent to set aside a hundred thousand to three hundred thousand dollars and more for the season. Their cottages were more like resort hotels and palaces. Some had over fifty rooms and could accommodate large numbers of guests. While the worst forms of snobbery existed, those most guilty often had common backgrounds. While the mansions rivaled the great chateaus, castles, manor houses, and palazzos of Europe, the exclusiveness of the European nobility was not possible. The European nobility lived on large landed estates far removed from the commoners, while in Newport, the land available made it possible for all to see the mansions and observe the behavior of the very rich. And their behavior was observed, written about, gossiped about, copied and even lauded in some cases. It has fascinated many of us for a very long time. I want to go just a little bit deeper in to set the scene here about Newport. It is quite a lot. Taking another bit from WarwickHistory.com, this piece was published July 19th, 2012. Again, check DunneAndDone.com for all sources and affiliated links. About Newport and its summer season. It would climax toward the end of the century with monumental mansions like Marble House and Rosecliff. The quote-unquote season in Newport was as important as the winter social season in Manhattan, and it took a great deal of money to maintain one's place in the circle. The season lasted about eight weeks, no more than ten. Here's where the Newport Preservation Society gets a shout-out from me. I have been desperate to know for ages what dictates the season in Newport. Back in the Gilded Age, there's no Memorial Day or Labor Day. 
what we consider kind of in the United States to be the bumpers of the summer season. Here's the key, friends. The season in Newport actually revolves around the New York City Opera. The season typically kicks off in late May, maybe early June. The kickoff really does depend on when you can arrive and based on your staff's preparedness. But the end of the season officially happens and coincides when the opera opens back in New York City in the autumn. The things you learn on Done and Done. Now, the end of the Newport season can vary by a few weeks, just depending on the simplicity or the complexity of whatever's premiering for the opera that season. Big thanks to the Newport Preservation Society again. I have wondered about that question for ages. Back to Warwick history. But the houses and grounds required year-long staffing and maintenance, albeit pared back in the winter. During the summer weeks, the cost of staffing and running a house ran between $2,000 and $4,000 per week. This is about $50,000 today. A single night's entertainment could cost $70,000 or more. One socialite's elaborate ball required a more jaw-dropping display by the next. When Mrs. Herman Ulrichs entertained one evening at Rosecliff, her opulent mansion modeled after the Grand Trianon at Versailles, she had a fleet of white ships constructed to float offshore in sight of the gardens. The ships complemented the swans, she stalked in the fountain, and the masses of white roses, lilies, orchids, and hydrangeas that decorated the house and lawns. The massive homes required tiers of staff. English butlers, French chefs, European governesses and nurses, several ranks of maids, and kitchen help were necessary. One historian noted that, quote, the less a woman appeared to be capable of performing any useful task, the more positively it reflected upon her husband's social standing, unquote. Crates of silver from Tiffany's and china from France stocked the pantries. And then there was the matter of the ladies' wardrobes. Get a load of this, y'all. Women required no fewer than 280 changes of costume during a typical season. 280. Off-season trips to France were not simply to sample the cuisine and see the sights. They meant hours in the salons of Paris designers. The millionaires who made their fortunes in banking and real estate showed off their wealth through horses and exclusive club memberships. Their wives displayed their financial and social status in gowns and jewels. The women changed costumes several times a day. There were reception gowns, dinner dresses, visiting dresses, evening gowns, and day dresses. And there was one cardinal rule never wear the same dress twice. The wealthiest of the New York Newport socialites 
patronized the House of Worth in Paris. Among them, the Astors, Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, Fishes, and Carnegies. While some return clients would spend around $10,000 on a season's wardrobe, others would spend that amount on a single ball gown. Mrs. Stuvestant Fish is remembered for greeting a group of guests in her opulent Newport mansion one evening, saying, Here you are again, older faces and younger clothes. When the season ended, all the dresses and gowns worn that year were given away, sent off to poorer relatives, or given to servants. The next year, it would start all over. In April of 1895, the New York Times made a slight mention of the links the cottage owners went to in order to outfit their homes. Quote, Many rare and valuable exotic plants have arrived here this week for Ogden Golett and Cornelius Vanderbilt. Both purchased them recently abroad, and they are said to include species which have not hitherto been seen here. They are, for the most part, plants of beautiful foliage and are designed for the decoration of the grounds of the new villas of Mr. Golett and Mr. Vanderbilt. Social climbers risked their entire fortunes in attempts to be noticed by Newport society. An engraved invitation to dinner or a dance from Mrs. Fish or Mrs. Astor was a coup. It meant acceptance. It also meant the lady of the house was expected to join in a regimented routine. Mornings were spent at Bailey's Beach, in full dress, of course, a private beach at the end of Cliff Walk. Afternoons were taken up in luncheons, teas, and perhaps other activities like tennis or archery. Evenings included dinners and a party at one cottage or another. Acceptance into Newport society could very well mean the financial failure of the husband not rich enough to keep up. The mistress of a Bellevue Avenue mansion was expected to give no fewer than six dinners for 60 guests and two balls for 600 within the eight to ten week season. The leading socialites would spend millions of dollars of their husbands' fortunes each summer. The vast mansions of that glittering era remain, perched upon the cliffs over the sea. The breezes still waft over the lawns, but no longer do they cool the parasol-shaded heads of New York's wealthiest women. In some, troops of tourists in madras shorts and flip-flops tromp through the gilt-drawing rooms, proof that the gilded age has indeed come to a close. And it has in Newport, Rhode Island. As mentioned, many of these Gilded Age estates are open to tour. Some have been turned into museums. There are a few select homes that are still privately owned. The Newport Preservation Society really does a tremendous job with making the Gilded Age and Bellevue Avenue come alive in Newport as we are going to do on Patreon this week in our continuing Bellevue Avenue tour of homes and heiresses. On Patreon this week, we are going to stop at the top of Bellevue Avenue and 
work our way down in about three episodes through 18 homes or so. We'll be dropping those bonuses on Patreon this week, the first of those coming up right after this episode, where we cover the first block. Our mansions there include Kingscote to Chepstow. So many houses, so many heiresses, with so many connected spiderwebs. Patreon folks, be on the lookout for those coming to you. Thank you all for tuning in today. I hope that gave you a little bit of background on the Gilded Age Society in Newport. Again, this is the way that our upcoming heiresses grew up. We have two specific ones coming that very much factor into Dominic Dunn's investigation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you listening, telling folks about Dunn and Dunn, for your kind reviews and emails too, for your Patreon support. Thank you all. You are so appreciated. Thanks in all the ways for being so awesome. I invite you to join me next time on Dun and Dun when we explore the case of one of Newport's most famous heiresses covered extensively by our man Nick in the 1980s. Until we meet again on your next Dun Day, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Dun and Dun podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at dunanddun at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Dun and Dun Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.dunanddun.com. See you next week, friends.